Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, so I want to read for everyone my favorite line from the impeachment hearings on Wednesday. This is from Ranking Member Devin Nunes' opening statement. The witnesses deemed suitable for television by the Democrats were put through a closed-door audition process in a cult-like atmosphere in the basement of the Capitol, where the Democrats conducted secret depositions, released a flood of misleading and one-sided leaks, and later selectively released transcripts in a highly staged manner. It was like a Masonic ritual. <laughs> just imagining a lot. Bloodletting. <laughs> They're all like drinking blood out of goat's horns just, with like hoods and a pentagram <laughs> with candles. I just also want to say that, that Adam Schiff is many things and I, I suppose can be criticized for many things. He is a most improbable cult leader. Yeah. I would not call him necessarily a charismatic force in that regard. I mean, never having been inside this gift myself, I can't imagine that it looks like a Masonic temple. <laughs> I have been inside looks that like a skiff. conference room. Yep. It's, yeah. it's your basic conference room. A big bike. table <laughs> and some walls and some chairs. I mean, were the witnesses like stripped naked with an <laughs> altar <laughs> and deemed suitable for testimony? Cult-like atmosphere. Oh, my God. Oh, it's a gift. It's a and gift. if you testify, you will be immortal. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's a certain kind of immortality, this celebrity. <laughs> George Kent has been waiting for this moment his whole life. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the cult-like atmosphere edition. <laughs> I'm Shane Harris. <laughs> cult leader. <laughs> Noted cult leader. If Shane this Harris. was a cult, you would definitely be the leader. I we, would hope so. And we are definitely not drinking scotch today. We're drinking blood out of goats. Yes, uh, exactly. Horns. Exactly. We have all declared our allegiance to Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to end the madness. <laughs> and there will be occasional chanting <laughs> This episode of Each Instead segment. of an oath, you, you, you recite oh. from the Book of the Dead. Nunes <laughs> <laughs> is going to sue you for this. <laughs> no, it's entirely possible. Look, he, these are his words, not mine. He's going to sue me for reciting his own words. If I join the cult, can I stop covering the impeachment? <laughs> Willing to consider. Uh, I am here in the new jungle cult chamber with my fellow rights of, I don't know, what would we call ourselves? <laughs> Acolytes. I don't know what Acolytes. that's about cults, honestly, to take you any further down this analogy. Rational security. <laughs> Rational security. <laughs> I'm here with Susan Hennessy, Ben Winnison, Tamara Coffin. Winnis. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. We made it through the first day of public impeachment. Oh, my God. That was only one day. Only one. There's oh so God. much more to go. There's so much more. Uh, on the podcast this week, the first witnesses testify publicly in the impeachment inquiry. A jury deliberates Roger Stone's 
fate, he will not be joining a cult. Well, he might join. No, no he's. He and he is. definitely could be a cult leader. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that is the cult leader in this story. Let's be very clear. And Turkey's <laughs> President Erdogan visits Washington. Also could be a cult leader. It's possible. All right. Let us just dive right into it. Um, so yesterday we saw testimony from George Kent, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State responsible for Ukraine, and Bill Taylor, who is the – is it charge or charge? Charge. Chargé d'affaires. Chargé d'affaires. The uh, top U.S. diplomat in Kiev. Uh, and it is Kiev. Everyone learned this yesterday. Get it right, people. I thought and it's Ukraine with no definite article. Yes. I thought that you like we were still allowed to do it the Russian way. It was just they were giving – after reading many an explainer and video on this because oh. I found myself fascinated by it. Like the Kiev is the Russian pronunciation. Yes. Okay, so we know what team so you're on. Kiev, you obviously. Kiev. Uh, okay. Well, the you thing know, is, the, the Russia <laughs> file that the, I am. The Ukrainian kind of has a has a schwa in there, so it's not it's not it's Kiev. Like, it's it's Kiev. It's oh, real. Man. It's it's actually like I'm going to start doing that on TV for now and annoy Kiev? the crap out of everyone. Yeah, it's, it's like the one friend who's Spanish who studied in like Barcelona and calls it like tortilla like Barcelona. all the time, right? It's just like ah. Bill Taylor, a charge d'affaires in Kiev. Kiev. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still coping with the fact that it's Rod Rosenstein. So like I, oh the God. idea of changing Kiev. Who's not at tweeting this point. anymore? By the way, no. I just want to point out that Rod has mysteriously Maybe he didn't make it out of the basement. <laughs> Just going through cult deprogramming. <laughs> uh, all right. So, Ben, why don't you tell us – give us your, your kind of your overall impressions. Obviously, this was a a hearing in which I think people weren't expecting to see uh, or hear many surprises. There was one. We're going to get to that in a second. But, you know, so it was an anticipated event but one in which we kind of, you know, we'd all read the script sort of and now we're going to see the play acted out. What was your impression? All right. So first of all, that's, I think, a background condition of a lot of these hearings, which is that, you know, we've basically had three waves. First, you have the wave where people go into the hearing room, at the, the, the cult chamber, and they tend to or somebody tends to along the way release their opening statements. And so you kind of know the top line of what they mean to communicate. And that happened, you know, two weeks or a month ago for some of them. Then you have the period last week where the committee releases the hundreds of pages of deposition where this person testifies. And then you have the thing that starts yesterday, which is the sort of public repetition of the highlights of that in a public setting, in a kind of interview setting with a a separate introductory statement. So for people who have been following these very carefully, uh, the basic story that these two men told was quite well known, both from when their opening statements came out and also both of them had their depositions released last week. That said, I don't think very many people had really focused too much on the story that they told. The story that they told yesterday is a dramatic one, uh, and it's a dramatic one for reasons that overlap with one another. And, you know, what I don't know is how many people were kind of listening to that narrative. But I do think if you're somebody who is relatively naive to the story and who kind of tuned in yesterday for the first time, this is a pretty shocking story that two extremely 
uh, respected and very well spoken. And uh, one of them in particular, George Kent, is uh, sort of extraordinarily well spoken and a, a truly amazing witness. And they tell a really compelling story of the policy process being hijacked by the president's personal interests and his kind of personal lawyer and them kind of getting increasingly unable to deliver traditional U.S. commitments to Ukraine without uh, having the Ukrainians need to uh, satisfy the president with respect to personal political favors involving the investigation of conspiracy theories in which he believes and the uh, activities of the family of one of his political opponents. And so I think it's a pretty dramatic story, very well told. I think the Republican efforts to throw smoke up at it were largely ineffective with a few very specific exceptions. And I don't know that it will matter at all because I'm not sure how many people are listening carefully. But I do think for those who are, it was a very bad day for the president. And it seemed like it also, I mean, Susan, it helped by setting the frame. It seemed like they were sort of starting, you know, a little bit back with the story and giving these reactions and giving the context of Ukraine and why it matters. And as subsequent witnesses come along, we're going to kind of zoom in on the story a little bit. Did you get that feeling too? Yeah. So I did think that one thing these witnesses did really well, which is no surprise because their State Department officials, was explain how harmful this was to relations with Ukraine, explain how harmful this was to Ukrainians, and explain how just the attempt was harmful. They really went out of their way to explain this was not about whether or not military aid was released or not released. Ultimately, we have shaken the confidence of these really important partners. By shaking the confidence, we have emboldened the Russians. And so they really did make the case for how what actually occurred was deeply corrosive, deeply harmful, not just to the Ukrainians, but also to the United States' interests in the region. And um, I, I thought it was really telling that they they went out of their way to make that those points. And, and also, I thought it was um, telling and, and quite moving that both witnesses made a, um, a very clear point about standing up for their colleagues who had come under attack. Uh, and really sort of presenting, you know, in the, the uh, you know, swaggerless State Department of Mike Pompeo, um, that really was the State Department sort of coming forward and, and standing shoulder to shoulder in really difficult conditions. And I think that actually was sort of a, a moving thing to see. You know, look, they established there was a quid pro quo. Everybody knew about it. Everybody understood what was going on. And I think one of the most remarkable things was how incapable Republicans were of defending that, of attacking it on the substance. I think there were a few places in which they kind of tried to. So one of like the moments that I think got the most like, you know, comedy tweets was whenever Steve Castor, the committee counsel for the Republicans said, but it's not as outlandish as it could be, um, which, to which Bill yeah. Taylor literally laughed and replied, no, it's not as outlandish as it could have been. Which, um, by the way, is a great slogan for Trump. For exactly. The Trump 
2020 could get worse. (laughs) In in fairness to to Castor, although maybe this isn't, you know, I don't know that it's particularly flattering of him. I I think actually what he was trying to do was to make the point that it's not that irregular to have private people operating on I think that was the point he was trying to zoom in on and then just kind of stumbled and couldn't quite and then ended up sort of making this spectacle of it. Um, The format was incredibly advantageous for the Democrats, both because of uh, because of the style and also because of the substance. And Republicans like knew that going in too. I think this is part of the reason why Nunes just tried to torpedo it in the beginning. Yeah, and I do like these conspiracy theories that actually shows that the conspiracy theories that actually hold together quite well in five minutes of testimony in which they can be sort of saved by the bell at the end and make it look as though they were about to get that witness to admit something, but then the chairman stepped in. Actually, in 45 minutes, it's like just enough rope to hang themselves and actually make them look quite ridiculous. You know, so so all in all, I... A, a notable first day lack of pizzazz, you know, to the side. You know, the other thing was the extent that the Republicans were really going all in on the idea of whether or not these people were firsthand witnesses or not. Right. Super weird strategy when next week is chock full of people who are firsthand witnesses who have communicated with the president. Tammy, this also it seemed to me too that if you're a foreign service officer, you're probably actually quite proud of the job that Kenton Taylor did representing there. And I think you know, I wondered if a lot of people going into this sort of had in their head the image of the diplomat being <clears throat> well, kind of like George Kent, frankly, with the bow tie and all this and these sort of, you know, they always have the, the – there's the stereotype of the, you know, the, the wine sipping. Pants, pin, yeah, striped pants, cocktail yes. circuit, whatever. But these were also clearly people who were talking about having served on the front lines and being in some very tough negotiations and being just very – clear-eyed about the way the world works, which I thought was compelling too. And they, they, I think they did come across as both thinking they were very alarmed by what was happening, but it didn't to me have a partisan tinge to it. I actually think that the pairing of George Kent and Bill Taylor was extraordinarily effective here, both because of their careers and what they've done and seen and the experience that they can call upon when they were asked questions by the two councils about how you know, whether something was usual or unusual or how unusual it was, but also because of who they represent, in a sense. George Kent is a career foreign service officer who has specialized in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine over the course of his career. And so the history of American foreign policy across Democratic and Republican administrations um, with respect to Ukraine and Russia and the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. He can speak to that with a ton of authority. Bill Taylor, of course, was a Republican appointee ambassador to Ukraine, um, but he's not a career foreign service or civil service officer. As he said clearly in his testimony, he is a Vietnam vet, (laughs) a West Point grad, and uh, somebody who has been appointed by both Democratic and Republican presidents to a variety of positions. So, you know, he can't easily be labeled as just one of those striped pants diplomats. Um, And he said explicitly more than once, actually, both in his opening statement and then under questioning, I'm nonpartisan. I have taken political appointments from Democratic and Republican presidents. I'm not here to speak for either side 
you know, either side in the context of this hearing so clearly Democrats and Republicans, you know, or Trump and anti-Trump. I'm not here to speak to either side. I'm here to speak to what I know. And I think that he did that so carefully and clearly. You know, certainly anecdotal evidence based on all the folks I've been in touch with is that, yes, the Foreign Service and I think government employees in general were standing tall yesterday watching these two individuals do their duty, speak the truth, and also give such a clear uh, and admirable representation of what nonpartisan public service means. Yeah, I was kind of going to say something very similar. I mean, Tammy and I had a dinner recently with some Foreign Service career people uh, and the pride in the institution, you know, over this period uh, is quite palpable. And, you know, I, I think having people like uh, George Kent and Masha Yovanovitch tomorrow, these are people who this people in this institution are very proud of and sort of think of as you know, the people that you would want speaking for the Foreign Service and the career Foreign Service over time. And so I I do think there's a, you know, this is at a time when the Foreign Service has been kind of under attack from, uh, you know, the the word hollowing out appears in almost every one of these depositions. And people are very concerned about the loss of institutional expertise. And I do think there's a real kind of sense of pride in the people that are speaking for them. I do wonder if one consequence of this sort of unrelated will be sort of a groundswell of support for Elizabeth Warren's proposal to revert to basically an apolitical, apolitical ambassadors and end the practice of rewarding, you know, political donors with ambassadorships, if there was a campaign commercial cut for that proposition, if there was a scandal tailor-made to show sort of the potentially negative effects of the current U.S. practice. call it the Sondland Act. (laughs) We saw it on display yesterday. I mean, Tammy, I don't know if you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it does strike me that this actually could be sort of give it a little bit of of juice as kind of potentially a democratic primary platform. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think we see the downsides of having ambassadors who are quite literally and materially personal representatives of the president. But that also speaks to the nature of this president. I'll just note, you know, on this point about the the Foreign Service retired uh, ambassador on Twitter yesterday said, you know, in response to the notion that these are permanent Washington people. No, these aren't permanent Washington. These are permanent American. And I think, you know, that sense of America's national interest, that's what you heard yesterday. So I do want to talk about briefly a bit of news that Bill Taylor made in his opening statement. He said uh, that he was going to add something to his his previous testimony that uh, last Friday, so just a few days ago now, uh, he had a conversation with a member of his staff who we now know is a man named David Holmes who is the senior political officer at the embassy in Kiev uh, who informed him about a lunch that he had attended the day after that call back in July that Trump had with Giuliani and he was at this lunch at a restaurant in Kiev with Gordon Sondland and Ambassador Sondland called – I gather on his cell phone, which interesting. There's a history of diplomats talking on cell phones in Kiev. Not a great idea and called back to the president and Holmes could overhear, according to Taylor, 
Trump, I guess, talking loudly enough to say the investigations and was talking about the investigations with Sundlin. And when he hangs up the phone, Holmes says to Sundlin, what does the president think about Ukraine? And according to Taylor, Holmes says <clears throat> that Sundlin tells him the president cares more about investigating the Bidens than he does anything going on in Ukraine. Uh, Holmes will be deposed on Friday, I presume will be testifying publicly. I mean, Susan, that seems to me, I mean, that's kind of a, a fact witness to a conversation that he's watching and hearing happen between Sundland and the president. That seems pretty significant. Yeah. And notably, the AP is reporting that there was a second witness yeah. who overheard the conversation the as well. Yeah. So additional sort of corroboration of that. Also, you have to wonder um, how a phone conversation on a cell phone is overheard by that many other people, <laughs> unless you're making a point of letting other people overhear yeah. your phone conversation with the president, perhaps as an indication to flex a little bit of muscle and say, I'm the person here who's operating on behalf of the president, mm -hmm. so you better listen to me. Mm -hmm. um, and you they know, did. Look, this is, this is a <laughs> direct tie between Donald Trump and what was going on on the ground. It's incredibly significant. Now, it's not the bombshell in the sense that it's the only tie, right? So we already heard, you know, we saw that call memorandum transcript, whatever we've collectively agreed to call it, in which Donald Trump very explicitly directs a foreign head of state to communicate and meet with Rudy Giuliani. We saw Bill Taylor and, uh, and George Kent yesterday testify to the fact that Rudy Giuliani was not pursuing the national interest. He was trying to, quote, dig up political dirt, I believe was the precise quote they used. So there's already lots of ties to sort of the president directly to this. This is yet another thing. It also is something that it doesn't directly contradict um, Sondland's updated testimony, but it doesn't squarely fit within Sondland's testimony either. So um, remember, Sondland sort of gave the original testimony in which he said, you know, there was no quid pro quo. A bunch of other transcripts were then released. He came forward and said, oh, that quid pro quo. <laughs> I didn't, I thought you were talking about a different quid pro quo. Now that you mentioned, yeah, there was a quid pro quo. Um, so whenever he came back in to do that update, uh, he mentioned that there was this phone call with Donald Trump, but he said it was like brief and non-substantive and not really memorable. Um, it appears that it was quite memorable to the other individuals who overheard it. And so uh, this could certainly produce more pressure on Sondland to actually come and give even more testimony and sort of give a, a, a sort of a, a foothold for Democrats to, to pressure him quite a bit. Um, also could pressure him to do things like producing his phone records, right? So how many times did he speak to the president of the United States? For what duration, what period of time? You know, so I again, I don't think it's transformative in part because Donald Trump's fingerprints are everywhere. This is not a scandal in which you can plausibly say, you know, this wasn't this was a bunch of people freelancing. This wasn't the president of the United States. I do think, though, it's a little bit of a warning to the Republicans. Right. There is more information out there. There are more shoes to drop. And so if you think, all right, you have 100 percent of the landscape and now you can sort of plot your course forward. This new stuff, as with Donald Trump, something new always comes out. And so you better be careful. And I think we actually saw some evidence of that, of the Republicans, like, not wanting to overly commit to any kind of substantive defense, because I think they realize that if Donald Trump doesn't turn around the next day and go on TV and admit it himself, as he's done in the past, you know, these other new fact witnesses are going to come out. Some new story is going to make them look like absolute idiots in the future and in, like absolute idiots in a way that might actually end up having electoral consequences. I also think this particular wrinkle on the story or addition to the story is going to set up an interesting executive privilege question when Sondland comes back and testifies next week. Because here you have 
this person recounting a firsthand, apparent firsthand involvement by the president. Sondland will be asked about it. And when Sondland is asked about it, that's an individual communication with the president of precisely the type that he will have been instructed not to address. And so the Republicans who, as Susan pointed out before, are in this position of saying you don't have a first – you have nothing firsthand will then have to defend the the refusal of the witness to tell them about the firsthand communications that clearly exist. And that's going to be very awkward. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to – the trial of Roger Stone, which... No segue? You're <laughs> Oh, God. Speaking of committing to positions and then looking like an idiot weeks later. Seriously. Well, we already used cult leaders, so I didn't know what to come up with. Just, it was Nixon much... tattoos. <clears throat> oh, yeah, he does have that Nixon tattoo on his back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so Stone's trial, which seems to have just kind of been just proceeding in the background, and it was brief, right? I mean, it was yeah, only about two a days. few days. Uh, Susan, just kind of maybe quickly remind us, if you can, what exactly Roger Stone is on trial for. But more importantly, you know, what have we learned from the presentation of the evidence here? Yeah, so Roger Stone is facing charges on sort of two fundamental fronts. So one is false statements to investigators and to members of Congress. So essentially sort of a 1001 perjury charges. And then the other is witness tampering, um, witness intimidation charges related to this famous statement in which he um, referenced the godfather uh, in potentially encouraging someone not to cooperate with uh, with witnesses. So I think the most, you know, we'll see um, it, the jury has gone to deliberation as of the past few hours. It was relatively brief trial, um, sort of reports from in the courtroom are that the jury is coming back with what looks like a lot of questions for the judge. Um, and there is some sort of question about the exact manner in which the government worded one of the counts. Um, but it essentially um, sort of falls on this idea that Roger Stone's fundamental defense at this point, um, sort of separate and apart from the witness tampering, um, which he basically is amounting to, it was just sort of a joke or uh, he didn't really want to encourage someone not to testify, is this idea that basically Roger Stone was lying. So um, whenever he was lying about his sort of interlocutors with WikiLeaks, there actually was no connection between Roger Stone and WikiLeaks. So the question of whether or not that's substantive in terms of the fact that he plainly lied to investigators about his communications with Randy Credico, he plainly lied to investigators about his communication with the Trump campaign, whether or not actually this like whether or not he's also lying to the Trump campaign um, about whether or not he has these connections. We'll see whether or not the jury finds that important enough. There does appear to be like at least some interest on on the question of that particular count. Um, I think by far the most important, interesting thing that's coming out of this is the what was underlying the redactions in the Mueller report. So there's this very long section in the Mueller report. I think it's eight, seven or eight pages um, that basically describes in the in the section that's on the Trump campaign uh, and dissemination of hacked material, these communications with Roger Stone, or these communications that Donald Trump has, um, for example, while riding in a car with Rick Gates going to the airport, uh, there's you know he gets a phone call from someone named Redacted, then he turns to Gates and says there's going to be release of information, right? Finding out that the people that the Trump campaign, the person that the Trump campaign is talking to, is Roger Stone, and basically uh, what this reveals is what we already knew, and that's that Donald Trump had advanced knowledge about WikiLeaks releases in July of 2016. He absolutely lied about that um, and that the campaign really did 
seek to get as much information as possible, welcomed that, that the releases of that hacked materials, sought to help them to sort of promote them uh, and, and help that the Russian effort succeed, understood that it was a Russian effort at the time. Um, and really, as we've already seen Rick Gates say in the unredacted portion of the um, Mueller report, you know, sought to have basically built an entire campaign and messaging strategy around WikiLeaks. And so this notion that Donald Trump didn't know or the right, this no collusion narrative, Donald Trump plainly knew about what was going on with WikiLeaks. And here is the proof. And so, you know, look, maybe it's a little bit Pollyanna-ish of me or, or uh, you know, reinventing history to say, you know, this is the kind of tidbit of information that had Mueller actually said it, had this, had he testified before Congress after this trial, like this is the sort of key pieces of information that sort of directly tied Trump. And so I do think to some extent, to the extent that the Mueller testimony kind of fizzled or didn't capture the public attention because it didn't seem to link Trump to the collusion part uh, sort of strongly enough. I, I do think that it's unfortunate because this strikes me as like a, a really big deal, confirmation of what a lot of people already suspected, but nevertheless, an indication of the president's knowledge and lies and and personal involvement in this really, really nefarious plot against the United States. And what do you think about that? I largely agree with that. I think the um, uh, the one wrinkle I would have to it is that it was pretty plain even before uh, the Stone trial that this is what happened. I mean, we kind of knew what those redactions covered up, or at least it was fairly easy to piece it together. So I don't think the revelation of this information is anything other than the revelation of what we all suspected or somewhere between suspected and knew to be the case. And uh, so I don't expect it to have any particular impact. Uh, that said, look, uh, the other thing about the Roger Stone case is just it is a reminder of what a cast of scoundrels is uh, you know, surrounded this campaign and participated in this campaign at various stages or were on the periphery of it. And the fact that, you know, we go through this question in this case, was Roger Stone's intermediary to WikiLeaks, Randy Credico, the a uh, guy who impersonates Bernie Sanders while on the stand. A very in, bold move. Yeah. Uh, having been told, you know, no impersonations of anybody by the judge says the not dog. even Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and, <laughs> the judge um, is like, okay. Um, and she was she was not amused. You know, was it you know what was was that was that the intermediary or was it uh, the guy who created the birther conspiracy? Or was there no intermediary? Because Roger Stone was lying the whole time, it was like Bianca. <laughs> you know, it was rough. like this is the question that we're litigating, actually, or uh, that set issue in the litigation. And like you're like these people helped elect a president, and we are living with the consequences of that even to this day. And so I, I do think there's a kind of like, like sort of. The trial illustrates the total freak show aspect of the 2016 Trump campaign. The Tim best people. Yeah. Tammy, there's a tangential link that goes 
as there are so many tangents in this story, that gets us back to Ukraine and what we were talking about in the first segment. So Rick Gates, who was the sort of right-hand man to Paul Manafort when he was the campaign chairman, testified at the trial and he and he he spoke to Roger Stone on his role. Separately, there has been this release under the Freedom of Information Act to BuzzFeed, a set of 302s, which listeners will remember. These are kind of like the write-ups of FBI interviews, uh, one of which was with Rick Gates. And one of the things that he revealed that was so interesting to me was that back in June of 2016, June-July 2016 timeframe, when the story had been broken that the Russians hacked the DNC server and we were all becoming aware that Russia was interfering in the elections, that Paul Manafort, even back then, was pushing this idea that, no, 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 Ukraine did this and not the Russians. I feel like that has kind of gotten lost in some of this and when we because we're seeing now the Republicans in Congress and other defenders of the president really pushing this idea of trying to make people pay attention to Ukraine and they were the ones who interfered in the election there's there's just really no evidence of that and certainly no evidence that there's a server sitting in Ukraine someplace but that was fascinating to me that somebody that close to the president who has his own history in Ukraine is pushing that theory while he's in the campaign and before, you know, long before anybody ever has any inkling that Ukraine might become a part of this narrative. Yeah, and I feel like this is one of the big sort of underlying questions or structural questions around the behavior that has now produced an, a set of impeachment hearings for the president um, that we may never really get an answer to. It's very clear that on the Trump campaign, around the Trump campaign, in Trump's circle, was a group of people who either believed or for their own political or financial purposes latched onto a set of conspiracy theories about Ukraine's role in the 2016 election, deflecting attention from Russia, and that that group of people worked hard to persuade the president of the validity of these theories and to get him to pursue what ended up being this extortion scheme on the new Ukrainian president. And, you know, just a few days ago in attempted defense number 386 by the Senate Republicans and House Republicans was this momentary argument that Rudy Giuliani and all these guys duped the president into this. And it they were just acting as rogues and he wasn't really aware of it. If only the czar knew. Right. If only the czar knew. And, you know, the reason that there's a little bit of meat to that argument is because people like Paul Manafort were so early on pushing in that direction and pushed it so consistently through 2016, through 2017, all the way till uh, Giuliani finally got Masha Ivanovich fired in May of 2019. So like every good conspiracy, there's a kernel of truth to that. <laughs> but of course, at the end of the day, and we already talked about this, what we saw such evidence of in the hearing yesterday was that the president knew all about this and he was directing this extortion scheme. No one was duping him into anything. It does raise an important question. I, you know, Maybe we'll get to the answer someday. But does Donald Trump genuinely believe this Ukrainian uh, interference well, narrative he, or does he is, – is he conveniently adopting it as deflection? Or are the two the same right. with Donald Trump? I'm whether... not sure he cares enough about what actual truth is in any given case. What he embraces as true over and over again is what makes him look good or what benefits him. We see that on issue after issue and case after case. Why wouldn't it be true here as well? 
Just one last brief question on Roger Stone. How do you guys think he comes out of this? I mean, presuming that he'll, I mean, I don't know if the jury's going to find him guilty or not. If he's guilty, he'll do some time. But I just think of Roger Stone as one of these guys who keeps evolving and enhancing his reputation because of his notoriety. And on some level, I mean, I'm sure he won't, he's not dealing well with the cost of this. I think there's been some reporting that actually this has been pretty financially, maybe even ruining for him. But this is the kind of fire that Roger Stone likes to come out of transformed and sort of bigger and badder than it's ever. It's true, although prison is does does not tend to do well for people in mm. this regard. And mm. look, I, I, I have not looked at what he would likely get if convicted under the sentencing guidelines. But I think you're talking about, you know, this is a situation in which he went to trial. And so you always pay a penalty for that as a as a defendant, if you go to trial and you lose, you don't get any points for a deal. There's no, you know, downward departure for cooperation, right? And so he would end up doing some actual time. And, you know, I I don't know that he emerges from that as a uh, like people's memories are short and what people take away from this. Uh, I don't know that he retains the celebrity that he now has. On the other hand, you know, maybe he's Mike Tyson and, you know, comes out, you know, what does not kill me makes me stronger in my celebrity. So I think he probably will be convicted of at least some of the counts, although potentially not all of them. Um, this has not been the smoothest case uh, for DOJ considering the evidence. And it also is a case in which at least some of the obstruction seems to have worked. Like it is relatively clear that for both Mueller and for sort of this prosecution team at DOJ, they kind of ran into some walls and they couldn't get really clear answers on to what extent Roger Stone actually was communicating. What information did he really have? Um, you know, I, I think what, what will happen is I, I don't know that Roger Stone will survive post-Trump, right? And so remember, Roger Stone was sort of irrelevant and nobody, and, and like, right, his, what he did was he, like, attached himself like the little remora that he is to Donald Trump and sort of reinvented himself or not even well, reinvented, but like thing. had this sort of this moment. And so I don't see, unless there's another person like Trump who who finds some sort of benefit, I can't imagine Another politician, even sort of a Trump 2.0, who's like a little bit smarter and savvier, looking at Roger Stone and being like, yeah, yeah that, guy on that my guy's team. a huge asset. Let's like let, let me have a close relationship oh, with him. I wish I believed that, Susan. But I feel like Trump is just the latest, most egregious and scariest because he has the most power manifestation of the shameless politician model that now suffuses our system. And as long as shamelessness is a virtue in our electoral politics, I think people like Roger Stone will have market value. Just before we move on, I just have to note that this is an important first in the history of rational security. It's the first time the word remora has been spoken Ooh. on this show. And so well thank, done, so Susan. Thank you for An that, important Susan. moment. Yeah. We want all marine animals to be represented on the show. not the first time we've said remorse. <laughs> um, well, if you were uh, a controversial leader who was having – some sort of tense times with the president. Yesterday was a great day for you to make a visit to Washington <laughs> because he was pretty much guaranteed to be uh, consumed by headlines. Uh, but Tammy, the president of Turkey, uh, Mr. Erdogan, came here to pay a visit to his friend Donald Trump. 
Of course, we've talked recently in the podcast uh, about a fateful phone call. Lots of things happen with Donald Trump in phone calls, don't yeah. they? Keep him yeah. away from the phone. <laughs> don't let to Gordon Sondland. Don't let him – don't let his thumbs touch it. Do you think Gordon Sondland had like the speakerphone on and like, hello, Mr. President? Totally. In uh, front of the embassy staff, he's like, look what a big man exactly. I And they're just like, oh, totally. do tell. I bet he's like that – Dick on the Acela coming back from New York who has Talking like his in the phone up car. in the quiet car and you're like, we get it. You're so important. Um, there goes our general rating for this week. We are explicit once again. Uh, Fuck yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, of course, President Erdogan and President Trump had had this phone call. And after the phone call, President Trump announced uh, that he was pulling troops out of Syria. And then, of course, the Turkish operation to go into Syria begins. With that as backdrop, what were people expecting out of this visit um, by the Turkish president? And what happened? How did it go? Yeah. So, actually, I mean, in some ways, this was, in principle, a high-stakes meeting for both sides Ankara and Washington have had a very bumpy relationship, growing bumpier, despite the uh, rhetorical bromance between these two guys um, that was in evidence yesterday as well. But, you know, substantively, a lot of clashes, not just over the Syria incursion, um, which no question President Trump essentially invited or greenlighted by announcing the withdrawal of American forces from northeast Syria, but you know, Erdogan then pursued this in a way that American officials, including Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, the, the Syria envoy, told Congress, you know, we think that there were war crimes committed here and ethnic cleansing of Kurdish populated areas along the border with Turkey. Turkey purchased these S-400 air defense systems from Russia, which is not a nice, friendly thing for a NATO ally to do, but more- <laughs> We prefer con- you not. We prefer that our NATO allies not buy weapon systems from Russia, but more concretely subjects Turkey to sanctions under a law called CATSA, the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. And so the administration is supposed to, under the law, impose sanctions on the Turks for this. And Congress is balking and the administration has been threatening to end Turkey's participation in the F-35 fighter jet program as a result of the S-400 purchase. So, you know, real roadblocks in the U.S.-Turkey relationship right now. And then you have that you know, what actually went down in this meeting, which is that Trump went ahead with the meeting in the face of Turkey's incursion into North Syria. And Erdogan came ahead anyway, even though he had spent the last several weeks beating up publicly on the United States for its cozying up to Kurdish terrorists, quote unquote, in Northeast Syria. Both of these guys had things they wanted out of the other one, And they both walked away essentially with nothing. There were a lot of kind words. Uh, Erdogan called Trump my dear friend. And Trump said of Erdogan that he was a big fan. Trump tried to get a little bit of work done in his weird way by throwing together in a room President Erdogan and five Republican senators who were upset with Erdogan about the Russian S-400 purchase. And it was just a huge fail. Erdogan showed the senators this propaganda video about Kurdish terrorists. 
And the senators yelled at Erdogan and, you know, said, well, shall we show you a propaganda film about your Turkish-sponsored Syrian militias that have been engaged in war crimes in northeast Syria? The Senate was about to vote on uh, the House-passed resolution declaring the killing of Armenians uh, at the beginning of the 20th century a genocide, which is something the Turkish government resolutely opposes. And so basically, like, this was... Let's pretend to make nice in front of the cameras, but neither of us is actually achieving anything that we want. I think the most bizarre component of yesterday's engagement was the the very 19th century Victorian move that Erdogan made in bringing back a paper copy of the letter that President Trump had written to him last month. This was that infamous letter that Trump sent him after the incursion into northern Syria in which Trump said, don't be a tough guy. Don't be a fool. Do this in the right, humane way. And Erdogan thought this was an insulting and undiplomatic letter. And so he was not entirely wrong. He was about not entirely that. wrong. And so Erdogan said yesterday, this letter was represented to Mr. President this afternoon. <laughs> After he pulled it out of the trash where he apparently had put it before. Right. And, you know, it put me in mind immediately of Ophelia telling her father in Hamlet that she had, as he instructed, returned all of Hamlet's letters to him, to wow. her. <laughs> Reminds me of like a mouthy child when you respond, you want to try that again? Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is, I mean, Ben, this reminds me that, you know, when we were talking about a few weeks ago about Trump's decision to pull troops out of Syria, we were asking the question because it enraged so many Republican senators that he needs on his side when they're presumably going to be jurors in his impeachment trial. And I'm just wondering if if this is, again, depleting that reservoir of goodwill that he has to then throw all these people in a room with Erdogan and <laughs> make them sit there and watch a propaganda video. Can I posit another theory about that and see which one Ben agrees with? So my theory is the opposite of that, that Mm. actually putting these senators like Lindsey Graham in a room with Erdogan is not about depleting the reservoir. It's about letting those Republicans say a bunch of stuff that makes them look really, really tough. And it lets Lindsey Graham go out there and confirm that he exchanged words with Erdogan. Yeah, that's They had this united front. And so I maybe it's overly cynical, but I actually took it as sort of a Republican senator courting move. Gosh, I actually take it. I, I, I want to posit still a third theory, which is it's actually a dominance move with respect to those Republican senators. And like I can put Lindsey Graham in a room with Erdogan and he's got to take it. And yeah, he can shout about it, but he can't not show up if I summon him. And by the way, it's going to be Lindsey Graham who stops the uh, House resolution resolution. on Armenian genocide in the Senate because, God damn it, he's mine. And um, (laughs) he has like a little list like John Bolton with Kim Jong Un. Check. Check. (laughs) Lindsey Graham with Erdogan. Check. No, but I but I think that like I think when you deprive people of their independence like that. They become wholly owned subsidiaries of you and they have nothing left other than your goodwill. And, you know, Lindsey Graham is a great example of that. This is somebody who two, three years ago had a genuinely independent reputation and Trump with Graham's uh, involvement has taken that away from him. And if there's one thing he stood for, 
it was uh, a kind of independent activist foreign policy of precisely the type that Trump has you know, done violence to in the context of dealing with Erdogan. And so what do you do? You say, Lindsay, come and get along with Erdogan. And, you know, there's no greater humiliation for him. Well, that's interesting. And I wouldn't, knowing what we know about Donald Trump, I actually wouldn't be surprised if that's the real explanation. The way I was thinking about it was more in terms of like, you know, what we call in international relations theory, negotiations as a two-level game. Trump's been saying to Erdogan, like, oh, you, my domestic politics, you just don't believe what hard asses these guys in the Senate are. And he's been telling the senators, oh, you just won't believe what a hard ass this guy Erdogan is. Well, put them in a room together and let them actually see it themselves. And then maybe they each soften up a little bit and let you make a deal. Uh, you know, that's that's what I was assuming in terms of the logic of this. But clearly the outcome was a total backfire. Everybody came away hardened in their positions. I don't think anybody is softer at all. And so we have no agreement on a permanent ceasefire in northeast Syria, which means that civilians are going to continue to be displaced. We have an American ISIS detainee who is going to be deported by the Turks back to the U.S. against our will. You know, we, d- we still are going to have this genocide resolution coming up in the Senate eventually because domestic politics in the United States, I think, are going to make it hard for the Republicans not to bring it to a vote. You know, and we still have other things that may blow up, like Erdogan's son-in-law and his involvement in Hulk Bank, which is now being criminally investigated in the U.S. for sanctions busting and about to get sanctioned by the Treasury Department. So Erdogan doesn't come out of this with a lot to look forward to either. All right. Well, we have something to look forward to. Object lessons. Everyone has an object lesson today. Uh, Who wants to go first? I will go first. So this is my final report podcast object lesson, which is that we're done. We did the entire podcast. We adopted the entire Mueller report. It is 15 episodes. The story is over. Or is it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Still got um, those redactions to peel back. A bunch of you have tweeted at me about season two. Yeah, come which, on. Like, I would know. welcome anyone to make a season two, but just not me. Um, <laughs> you might have to do a Ukraine report. We were yeah. just delighted with how it turned out and um, really hope people listen to it and are very proud of the, the product. And I still have the firm belief that, like, maybe this will be on my tombstone, but, like, read the report. The Mueller report really matters. <laughs> really matters if people understand what's in this document. Um, and so I hope people will check it out and consider it a resource not just now but um, in the future as you want to – Refresh your memory about what exactly the president did in the 2016 election and how it might be relevant to what he appears to be doing in the 2020 election. Here, here. Congratulations. I will continue on that theme uh, and log roll for my colleagues at The Washington Post, uh, particularly my good friend, uh, Ross Helderman. Uh, I have in my hands a copy of the Mueller Report Illustrated. It's the graphic novel version. It's the graphic novel version of the Mueller report. Oh, I love Trump's mouth. Isn't that great? Oh, it's, that's perfect. The cover's really good. Yeah. I, I can't share the contents yet because it's not on sale, but I can show you the cover. Uh, and um, this is really exciting. It is. It is exactly like it sounds. It is a graphic, uh, graphic novel. I guess it's graphic and graphical, recounting uh, the report. Uh, if you are into visualization, uh, and as, if maybe as opposed to. Audioization, or if you're in the both, 
Or all of them. If you just can't get enough. Right. Multi-sensory Muller input (laughs) here from the law firm. We're going to do the virtual reality (laughs) version. Muller whiskey pod. Love it. So we will post a link to this and get your copy. They're coming out soon. All right. Tammy. Okay. So um, there was a ton of explanatory journalism about every aspect of yesterday's impeachment hearing. Much of it fantastic. Um, but I think my very, very favorite discussion of the context for yesterday's hearing was our Eric Thomas's piece in Elle magazine. Yes, that's right. The fashion magazine entitled George Kent's Gigantic Impeachment Nalgene has me quid pro quenched. And it is a hilarious, hilarious piece about the massive Nalgene water bottle that George Kent brought. The very styling George Kent with his bow tie and his pocket square and his big blue Nalgene water bottle. Fox News did a segment on how the Nalgene bottle was just part of the deep state culture wars. (laughs) (laughs) Because real Americans don't drink water. That should have been a big gulp. Thirsty. What is it? What are they supposed to be drinking? Is it like like a metal canteen or something? No, they're supposed to use disposable bottles, like plastic wrapped in like a rare otter pelt or something. Plastic bottle. (laughs) Well, anyway, George Kent, we love your environmentalism and we love your water bottle and Elle magazine and Eric Thomas. We love your sense of humor. Well done. All right, Ben. One year and one month after Lawfare was founded, I received an email from a friend who worked for the DNI, and she informed me that she had been surfing the D.C. government's websites and had discovered uh, a place where you could check whether vanity plates were available, and she had typed in Lawfare and discovered that Lawfare was available as a D.C. license plate and that she would take it as a personal offense if I didn't order it. And in about 60 seconds, I went from somebody who would never under any circumstances have a vanity plate and had contempt for people who did to somebody who had ordered a Lawfare (laughs) vanity plate, which um, I then, (laughs) to my wife's mortification put on our car. Now, the lawfare license plate thing actually caught on when a college senior in uh, Pennsylvania got the Pennsylvania version of the lawfare license plate, uh, which I posted to lawfare. Uh, So at at its height, I think nearly 4% of U.S. states had lawfare license (laughs) plates. Um, That said, this era has finally, and I'm devastated to say this, come to an end. Uh, The lawfare license plate has been attracting a lot of attention of late, most of it lovely. And to all the people who have stopped Tammy and me or honked at one of us and done fist pumps in the air or said lovely things or just honked and given thumbs up, thank you all. It has attracted some less... Uh, warm attention of late as well. And so we've decided it is time to fade back into obscurity. So today I replaced the Lawfare license plate with um, the MAGA 18, (laughs) you know, love Trump forever license plate. Uh, No, that's that last point is a joke, but I removed the Lawfare license plate 
And uh, I'm supposed to turn it into the D.C. city government, Aww. but I'm really inclined not to do that and to uh, hang it on the wall next to the big uh, Lawfare neon sign. Uh, so it is the end of an era. This leaves Sebastian Gorka with the most recognizable license plate in Washington, D.C. Oh, you know what? Yes. He can have it <laughs> and everybody can love finding his car. What is it again? Isn't it Art of War? Yes. <laughs> Something similar? Because he's an intellectual, Susan. On his Ford Mustang. And he's read about Sun Tzu. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I would have been if it was just like, you know, a phonetic spelling of Sun Tzu <laughs> instead. <laughs> I, 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 I had real pangs of regret with the screwdriver today taking off the, the poor lawfare license plate. And now you can frame it and hang it on the wall. Yeah. Going to do that. Well, it's the end of an era, end of a podcast. Rational Security is, of course, brought to you by the aforementioned Lawfare. You can find – maybe you could buy the license plate. Ben, you should auction it off. Uh, no. Unless you're representative <laughs> of, the, of the D.C. federal government, <laughs> no, in which case, absolutely not. We are <laughs> not selling license plates. <laughs> we would never I do would that. never do that this week. <laughs> you can find uh, Rational Security branded uh, scepters, pentagrams – Sheep's hooves, yeah. <laughs> goat cloaks. <laughs> and our incantation book. Claws from the rare otter with which you can gouge your flesh to yes. produce the blood to oh, drink. God, yes. ben. You can find this all. <laughs> you married him. <laughs> you can find it all at swear your allegiance to rational security.lawfare.cult. <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps other people find the show, and we really appreciate adding new members to our cult. The audio engineers this week were Michaela Fogel and Gordon All. The show is edited Cult initiates. <laughs> the show is produced by and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week, I'm just beating this joke to death. I'll just get through it. Uh, Devin Nunes and his a cappella rendition of Living Colors Cult of Person. Oh, oh, nice, nice. He could rock that out. Yeah. yeah. He could do it. I bet Devin Yeah, because you don't have to sing to do that song. Yeah, yeah. You just, like, you know, just, like, mm, just, you just thrash have to it. shout. Now, he would just do it. focus on the ABCs for now. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, he may be a very wah, talented, wah, wah. you know, new wave metal artist. It's possible. Uh, and maybe Sophia Yang could like back. No, I'm just like, we'll, try. we'll find you a keyboardist, Congressman. On behalf of my good friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you next week. Pray for your soul. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.